Cape Fear Rundown. From WHQR Public Media, I'm your host, Camille Mojica. I am back from COVID. I managed to outrun it for years, but it finally caught up to me. All is good, though. This week, we catch up with Kelly to go over some of her coverage from this past week, and then Ben joins us with more documents that tell a story. Stay tuned. Kelly's week has been pretty jam-packed, but we're going to talk to her about her coverage of the continuum of care and a meeting that happened this week. Here she is. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Kelly. Hi, Camille. I did not finish. Kelly Knoyer. Camille Mojica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So you actually had a lot of coverage this week. We're recording this on the 8th, which Mm -hmm. is Thursday. You've already had how many stories? Four? Yeah, maybe five. (laughs) It's it's been a week. It's been a long week. You've had about four or five stories since the middle of last week come out about housing going on. Yeah, and I did a panel on development on Saturday, so. I forgot about that. I'm going on my honeymoon next week, and I'm so ready. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like you front-loaded everything out of the way, so now you can have a nice honeymoon. I was like, oh, it's going to be so chill after I finish my enormous newsroom on homelessness and crime and then everything exploded. Everything did explode. Can you explain why things exploded? So first of all, um, I think that the endowment news has been really dramatic for housing. I've gotten a lot of calls about it since it happened. Um, But some of the other stuff that's happened is that I went to a COC meeting. That's the continuum of care. I was told to go because there is a new plan that they've said about. It's like a three or four or five year strategic plan for how they want to get organized and be better at the stuff that they do. Um, so what I was, is the continuum of care? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> the continuum of care is, it's under what is called the Council of Governments or the COG. And basically it is a housing and urban development HUD mandated agency. So, so it's mandated. It's required to exist in every part of the country because it's the organization that does things like tracking the homeless population through the point in time count. But it's not funded federally, so local governments have to fund it. Okay. Um, And it's basically it acts as an umbrella organization for all of these different nonprofits and organizations that are involved with uh, homelessness services. Okay. Um, The main thing that they do other than the point in time count is they give out grants every year. It's about half a million dollars in grants. So not a huge amount of money, but it's pretty significant given how hand to mouth a lot of homeless services organizations are. Um, And they also do data tracking through what's called HMIS or the Homeless Management Information System um, and Coordinated Entry, which is similarly a data management system. Basically between those two things, um, they track who is homeless and asking for services and they try to make sure that people who have the highest need and have been waiting the longest are first in line for those services. Oh, so they have like a whole database where they keep track. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of this hidden spider web of information <laughs> that it means that all of these organizations that are trying really hard to do good work, instead of floundering around without knowing what everybody else is doing, they actually have that information and they can go, oh, I just realized that Jimmy, he comes here for meals twice a week, but he's actually staying over there. And so and so is the one who's providing showers. So oh. maybe we can make sure that uh, his social worker that we know about 
out from Coastal Horizons is able to find him there, and then they're going to help him get into housing this way. So basically, they can make sure that they're tracking people Mm -hmm. at all of the different touch points within the system, whether it's housing or food or anything else. And then they're able to kind of help people move along on the pathway towards more permanent housing. Okay. So question for you, the organizations that provide these services for these folk in our county, are all of them under the continuum of care? No, most of them are. Um, There's basically one notable exception that people talk about a lot is Eden Village. Okay. And Eden Village is not part of the COC? It is not. Okay. Um, And I think that there are probably organizations that aren't part of the COC, but still participate in some of these data collection efforts. Mm -hmm. There's probably also members of the COC that don't always do the data collection. I mean, there was a whole lot of discussion when I went to the COC meeting about how it's kind of a pain in the butt to do (laughs) some of these data collection things. Like the training takes a long time. Um, But they all kind of overall think it's worth it because it helps them get more federal grant money when they have a better picture of who needs help. Mm -hmm. And it helps them figure out what programs work the best so they can kind of compare similar programs and go, okay, well, if we have this program over here and this program over here, but twice as many people are going to the second one, maybe we should make the first one a little bit more modeled like the second one. Okay. So it kind of helps them figure out what works the best. That makes sense. So at this meeting, the COC asked our local government to only fund efforts that fall under the COC, correct? It was not quite that. Um, I'll just back up a little bit. They started talking about a proposal that Eden Village came forward with. Um, Eden Village was not there. Uh, It was not represented there. So Rachel Lacoe is the one who brought up this Eden Village proposal. They basically wanted some land that they could put some housing pods on. They're calling them God Pods. They're basically these like tiny little shelters uh, with basically room for a bed. Yeah, I've taken pictures of those. Yeah, um, they're calling them God Pods, which I think is kind of funny (laughs) because it rhymes. Uh, But anyway... They wanted to have this land that was between 16th and 17th near-ish Good Shepherd Center for the God Pods. And, you know, it'd be $10 a night and there's all these other things. They wanted to, you know, have meal service and Mm -hmm. a shower trailer and blah, blah, blah. It was going to be like a six-month pilot program and then maybe they would keep them there. Okay. Um, The COC kind of initially was talking about whether they thought this was the best use of this land. They were like, I don't know if we should be doing something that costs, charges people Mm. there. I don't know if it's a safe location for pedestrians because 16th and 17th are so busy with traffic. Mm. Do we want to be concentrating poverty near Good Shepherd Center? That was something that Tafana Bradley at the county brought up, actually, because she lives in that neighborhood. She pointed it out. It's like a primarily black neighborhood. So are we really going to be concentrating this here when there's so many other neighborhoods it could go in, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's also a brownfield site. So they were like, maybe it would be better to just sell this land and then use the proceeds for something else. This is probably better as a commercial property. But really what it ended up becoming about um, is that they, they started talking about whether they should give anything to Eden Village specifically. Huh. So it became more about whether Eden Village should be given government resources when they're not participating in specifically coordinated entry and HMIS. They're not, you don't have to be a COC member to do those things. Um, But they're not doing them. But they're not doing them. One of the things that I think is confusing about this whole conversation is the assumptions that people have about 
everything that COC membership entails. Okay. Um, there's a lot of organizations that do participate in the COC that are not getting federal grant money because federal grant money has so many strings attached. Um, I just got an email from somebody who volunteers at Eden Village comparing COC stuff to Section 8. And I just to be clear, Section 8 is way more strings attached than coordinated entry and HMIS. Those okay. are mostly data. Um, coordinated entry has more strings than HMIS. HMIS is literally just filling out sheets when you interact with people. Oh, okay. Coordinated entry is participating in that uh, that system that decides who goes first in line. Oh, I see. Okay. So basically, Eden Village never wanted to do coordinated entry because they wanted to be able to select who would be at their permanent village. Specifically. Specific intentional selection based on internal criteria that I never fully understood, but it sounded to me when I talked to Tom Dalton, who brought Eden Village to Wilmington, like he wanted a a cohesive community where everybody would get along. So they were picking people who would get along in this community. Okay. So that's not how coordinated entry works. Coordinated entry, it's like the highest need, the person who's been waiting the longest, no matter what their personality is or anything else. So that's why Tom Dalton didn't want to do coordinated entry, as far as I can tell. But at this point, Eden Village is fully... How, like, everybody's already in there. People okay. have moved in, right? Yeah. So if they're going to all stay for a long time, then coordinated ele- entry isn't relevant. And for the god pods, which have kind of limited requirements, like, you can, he told me, you can show up drunk or high. We're going to let you in so long as you just obey the ground rules while you're there. You know, it's fine. Okay. So that's not relevant for it. It's an overnight shelter that everybody's treated the same. So coordinated entry doesn't really apply. It would really just be HMIS. Um, Honestly, my takeaway from reporting this whole thing is that, gosh, everybody needs to communicate better. This is... Really? Yeah. (laughs) Why why was Eden Village not there presenting on their own behalf? Why are there so many assumptions that COC participation requires all of the same strings as any kind of federal grant funding? Mm. Those are... It's like... There's the COC requirements that federal guidelines do include. And then in a much bigger circle surrounding that circle are all of the other federal requirements. Okay, that makes sense. So I think there's just been a lot of misinformation and confusion. And frankly, I think that everybody should just get in a room and talk to each other. um, Because I think that COC is willing to just send somebody to collect this data at the God Pods. Well, we appreciate your reporting on it. It does... I think having you here to talk to us about it on the show helps make it a little bit clearer. I was reading your articles and listening and I was learning a lot, but I was like, gee whiz, there's a lot of cogs in this wheel. Cogs. Oh. Because of the Council of Governments. I didn't (laughs) do that on purpose. Um, But it's still good. I do want to clarify that part of the reason that the COC feels so strongly about this is that these data things are accountability for government money. And the reason Hmm. they think Eden Village should be participating is because they've gotten government money. The county and the city have donated to Eden Village to help them get things off the ground, and they were considering giving them land. So to the COC, it's like, if you want local money, you should be participating in local agency data management stuff so that we can see if it's working. Um, Maybe your idea is better. We won't know unless we can compare it. That's their argument. 
Um, but I think that a lot of outsiders kind of look at it and they go, this seems really petty and wonky and weird. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, everybody involved in this is a great person who's helping homeless people with their free time and out of the goodness of their heart. So, like, it's this, everybody agrees that we need to help people who are in need. And it's just like, are we going to cooperate about this in this specific way or not? To be or not to be. To be or not to be part of HMIS. Kelly, thank you for your reporting on this. And thank you for being on the show with me this week. And happy honeymoon. Thank you. Hope you all have a great day. Shout out to everybody who works in homeless services. I'm going to go on my honeymoon now. Ba-ba-ba. Goodbye. Ben has more documents, as usual. Sometimes the fine print or even reading in between the lines is where we get our stories. Ben joins us now to go over a new story. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shockman. Hi, Cammie. Was it because you were flipping pages as I started speaking? I feel like every time I'm in here, I have like a stack of documents. <laughs> you do. So I guess let's just get right into it. What are these documents that are in front of you? They look like... <laughs> That's the sound of me uh, collating and stacking these documents. What are these documents? So we have in front of us about six months of legal fees from the Brooks Pierce law firm uh, billed to the Brunswick County Board of Education starting in uh, December of 2022 and running into the uh, summer of last year. Okay. Why did the Brunswick County Board of Education need legal counsel? So that's a great question. Um, from what we can tell, this appears to be an investigation into uh, a complaint against former Brunswick County Superintendent Dr. Jerry Oates. Dr. Jerry Oates. Have, we've talked about Dr. Jerry Oates before. We have. Um, and I, I want to be, you know, very cautious and respectful here um, because we, Dr. Jerry Oates came up in the context of uh, his brother, Nicholas Oates, mm -hmm. who was a former, um, I believe he was an assistant teacher or teacher's assistant um, in New Hanover County. And Nicholas Oates was accused of um, sexual misconduct with a student. Okay. And he died while in the detention center in New Hanover County of, um, of a long-running medical condition. So he never got his day in court. Okay. And so even though the allegations are very serious um, and there were some very serious related concerns into how the allegations were handled, um, namely that he was um, investigated but uh, never, never charged okay. um, the first time around. Um, oh. And then, you know, a considerable amount of time passed and then another student was involved and then he was charged. Okay. And, you know, years ago, I investigated Nicholas Oates because he had a history of violence before he was hired. Um, okay. And this is all still Nicholas. This is all still Nicholas. This is, you know, Dr. Jerry Oates' brother. Um, and he, uh, he had been involved in several domestic violence situations where women took out temporary restraining orders against him. Hmm. Now, again, this is not a court finding you guilty of something. This is one side of the story. Yes. But he was accused of some very disturbing conduct, um, threatening himself and a woman, mm. um, both with physical violence and with a weapon. Mm. Uh, at one point, I believe the sheriff's office actually confiscated weapons from him under sort of the red flag laws mm -hmm. that exist in the state. And so that doesn't show up on your boilerplate um, you know, background check. Oh, it doesn't? Uh, apparently not, because he was hired after that happened. And But certainly people in the community knew about it. 
And so one of the questions we had always asked was, did his brother, um, Dr. Jerry Oates, um, who had been a teacher, I believe he had been actually a principal of the year here in New Hanover County before he moved to Brunswick County. Okay. So, you know, a prominent, well-respected member of the education establishment did a recommendation from him sort of allow him to overcome his, you know, past incidents. Okay. Understood. We never really got answers to that, but... That's the background. So if you've heard the name Dr. Jerry Oates before in the past. That's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. So looking at these legal bills, um, best we can tell, um, the the EOCC, which is the uh, um, a body that basically gives the green light for workplace um, lawsuits. So okay. wrongful termination, harassment, discrimination, stuff like that. Oh, okay. They were involved in this. There was, you know, interviews. Um, and reviews with the EEOC. I was going to say, was it, isn't it the EEOC? It's the EEOC. Yes, you said EOCC. Apologies earlier. to my uh, acronym. <laughs> my I, that's my bad, yeah. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so when this investigation starts way back in December, um, it's relatively, you know, December and uh, November and December of December 22. Relatively low cost in the grand scheme of things. It's a couple thousand dollars. Um, it looks like they're going over um, just some e- emails and whatever the EEOC had turned over to them. And how, then, are you, how are you able to tell that stuff? So what I'm looking at here is um, there's a cover sheet that gives you the total. And then I can literally see which attorney and how many hours that attorney billed and a brief description of what was oh. billed from the law firm. And this is um, this is what legal bills often look like. Um, and this is public record. This is public record because it's a school board. Okay, that it, makes sense. You know, um, but yeah, when you, a lot of the, you know, any any good attorney keeps scrupulous, meticulous records of what they do. Okay. You know, if they, you know, if it was a criminal case, for example, um, and you, your defense attorney, you know, called the prosecutor to talk about your case for half an hour, they would make a note on this day, at this time, I spoke with the ADA for half an hour. Oh. And if their rate is, say, $250 an hour, then they you get charged $125. Okay, that makes sense. So that's what I'm looking at, and that's how we can kind of see... What's going on. What's going on here. And so in the beginning of 2023, the investigation seems to ramp up quite a bit. It jumps from being about $1,000 a month to about $10,000, $11,000. That's a big jump. Yeah, and here we see, um, you know, multiple t- attorneys are involved and... Um, they're they're traveling and they're starting to uh, investigate witness not investigate witnesses but uh, talk to witnesses and take mm. their deposition. Uh, they're traveling around the region over the next couple of months. They travel um, to Pender County to Wilmington, so they talk to a bunch of people. Um, all those names are redacted, so we don't. Yeah, we don't know who. Um, and so, at the end of the day, after about six or seven months, over fifty thousand dollars was spent on this third party investigation of the superintendent of Brunswick County Schools. And this is the school's money that they're spending, right? Yes, correct. This is public money being spent on this. Um, and then uh, Dr. Jerry Oates left, um, and the abru- and the investigation abruptly ended. Hmm. And he went and he took a job, I believe, as the deputy superintendent for the state for NCDPI, working under uh, Catherine Truitt. Okay. And he worked there for, it looks like, about a year, less than a year, um, and then retired. And so he is retired now. Uh, that, that's how it appears. He may take a consultant job, but he's no longer working in public office, best we can tell. Okay. You know, we, we've uh, 
sent in requests for official record employment records from the state and Brunswick County just so we can share up the timeline. But that's what it looks like right now. Okay. And so that's all we know right now. I want to be really clear about this. Um, and there's a bunch of possible stories. You know, one possibility is that, um, you know, Dr. Oates did something inappropriate and he was investigated and then he left and that investigation just kind of stopped. And we've seen this before. Former New Hanover County Superintendent Dr. Tim Markley was being investigated for using his position to kind of lash out at a parent. Okay. Um, there was a parent who had filed a complaint. The parent worked for the sheriff's office. The allegation was that either uh, Markley or someone who worked under him, which is everyone in the school district, yeah, uh, called the sheriff's office to kind of try to intimidate this parent by calling his employer, basically. Goodness. Okay. And they paid, uh, just like this, they paid a third-party attorney to investigate. Um, that investigation actually apparently had some findings. Um, there was a report, and Mark Lee got a settlement agreement and left the district. This school board attorney, Wayne Bullard, um, actually basically took the report and quit. Um, and hasn't given the report back to the district. Oh. Um, and that that always struck me as being, I don't know, a theft of public property. It seemed at the very least like legal misconduct. Yeah, um, that doesn't seem very transparent to do. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I actually filed a bar complaint against him <laughs> for that. I don't know if anything ever came of it. I've never heard from the bar. <laughs> I have a letter saying we've received your complaint, but I hadn't heard anything else. Okay. So anyway, we've seen this before where internal investigations kind of come to kind of a rambling stop. Okay. Uh, when the person being investigated leaves. Because these are not criminal investigations. You no. Know, they're, it's basically like a, an internal HR investigation. Oh, I see. And so really, if the point of the investigation is to determine whether the employer has any liability or any issues here, uh-huh. and the person leaves, that like, kind of... So one possible story here is that Oates did something wrong. Was um, investigated. Was investigated, and the investigation just stopped because he left. Okay. The other possibility, because it would, at the end of the day, still be a personnel issue unless it was a fireable offense. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if a civil suit came out of this. And best we can tell, there haven't been any civil suits yet. It's possible that this was a non-credible allegation. Okay, of of some kind. Yeah, either a misunderstanding or something that didn't rise to the level of an HR infraction or a completely fabricated allegation. Okay. We don't know. If that's the case, it shows actually Brunswick County was willing to spend $50,000 to make sure. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And that's actually, but to me, that's a more encouraging story than just like, you know, a, a, a powerful person got away with it by going to a new job. It's like, that's how seriously Brunswick County took this allegation or any allegation is that they were willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars to talk to witnesses and and review paperwork and, you know, and and really investigate. I feel like that is the case regardless, though, right, of what, whether the first case scenario is the actual case scenario, Brunswick County still went out of their way to pay all that money. That's true. Yeah. And so I think, and and also I want to say Brunswick County has been completely forthcoming with these legal records. Mm. They didn't, there were no arguments about what they would redact. The only things redacted in these records are the names of people. Okay. Isn't that usually the case? It is usually the case, but we have at sometimes had to fight to get there. Um, mm. We've had to threaten lawsuits in the past. Um, and certainly not every government body is willing to turn over detailed legal records um, like this. Cape Fear uh, Community College once gave me uh, solid blocks of black. 
really? um, for, for this exact same kind of legal records. Um, <laughs> it wasn't an investigation in that case. Um, it was just legal services, but we really had to go around and around to get more transparency on that. But they were willing to give them over. Um, but Brunswick, Brunswick County, County. Brunswick County was um, immediately forthcoming. Very, 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 very transparent about that. Hmm. So if nothing else, that's an interesting part of the story. So we're, we're reaching out to Dr. Jerry Oates um, to get his take on it. Don't know if I want to talk about it. We don't know if any of the board members um, will want to talk about it. But it's it's a significant enough amount of public spending that there's mm. a story here, but we just don't know exactly what kind of story. Well, hopefully we can figure out what kind of story it is soon-ish. Yes, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, we have a couple of people, a couple of public records requests. That is a tongue twister, my goodness. <laughs> we have a couple of public records requests out that we should get back in the next week or so, which will help us tell the story a little bit more clearly. Well, Ben, thank you for always being the one to go through <laughs> mountains of documents to find the story. As always, I promise to recycle these when I'm done. You better. That's a lot of paper. That's so much paper. Ben, thank you for being on the show with me this week. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for tuning into the Cape Fear Rundown. Check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just general feedback, feel free to get in touch by shooting me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org, or you can find me on X at Cami Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, and I'll see you next week.